Travis Peterson. Travis Peterson grew up in rural Illinois. Travis learned to ride a bicycle. Travis played catch with football. Um, Travis went water skiing. Travis decided to go into full-time ministry, and he attended Southern Seminary in Louisville for training. When he graduated, Travis planted a church in the Chicagoland area. Then he planted another church in South Korea. And currently, Travis pastors a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Travis is married. Travis has three children. Travis preaches every week. Travis was born with a rare genetic disorder. He's been legally blind since infancy. When Travis was a child, he could see colors and contrasts and brightly lit things. But since college days, he's used his ears for pretty much everything. Travis has very, very limited light perception. He says, I have just enough to see if a lamp is still on in the living room. And I heard about his story, and I thought about him because we share the same vocation. And I thought, my goodness, my day-to-day work life would be so radically different if I were blind. I'd I'd be asking questions, who's going to take me to the hospital to see church members? Uh, Who's going to help me prepare my messages? Uh, Yes, there are audio books, but I mean, for the commentaries. I mean, just thinking about the logistics of reorienting myself just feels overwhelming. It feels like more than I could handle. And yet, Travis is doing it. And here's what he says. Travis says, in seminary, a fellow student told me that God was using my situation to convict him. The student said, as he watched me work through the process of traveling to and from class and studying tests and taking notes and reading the textbooks and all of the rests, he knew that these things required a great deal of extra work. And then the classmate said this. The classmate said, you know, If you can work through all your difficulties, Travis, to do what you need to do, I don't have any excuse for being lazy. And right there and then, Travis said, I understood something important about how God was going to use my weaknesses to encourage and challenge and to perhaps even motivate other believers. Travis goes on to say this, when God accomplishes something through me, be it preaching, counseling, sharing my faith one-on-one, nobody is thinking what a great guy I am. They're always looking to see how strong and how amazing and how powerful God is. And they see that if God can use me and my weakness, He can use anybody. Because the fact is there is no weakness that is not worth enduring if in the end God uses it to give you the joy of experiencing His glory. Now Travis's story illustrates what I want to talk about today in our current teaching series. So we are concluding a series that we have titled, I have titled, The Gospel According to Satan. I put that in quotes sarcastically because Satan is no bearer of good news. 
His gospel is a gospel of deception. And Jesus told us this about Satan. Jesus said that Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So whenever Satan speaks, he speaks to deceive. Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That's John 8 and 44. And so that's really why I want us to have spent these six weeks uh, on this series so that we will not be duped by the devil. That we will be undeceivable as, as children of God. And so we've been studying lies, deceptions, uh, quickly. We talked about the lie that Satan doesn't exist. He would, he would love for you to think he doesn't exist. What about the lie, you will be like God? That's Genesis chapter 3. It's the oldest, oldest, most primitive lie in the Bible. And then there's a lie that Justin walked us through several weeks ago. It's a follow your heart. Follow, it's, it's really a, kind, of a, it's kind of a cultural gospel, isn't it? Well, You've got to be true to your heart. You've got to follow your heart. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't follow your heart. Lead your heart. Lead your heart to Christ and follow him. And then we talked about the lie of the, the, the lie of shame, the lie of damaged goods, the lie that says God could never forgive you for what you did. Well, we learned from Zechariah chapter 3 that that's not true. God, God takes the filth, the clothing of sin off of us, and then he, he, he robes us with his righteousness. Yeah. And then last week we looked at the deception claims that you have a right to your resentment <laughs> someone said resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die yeah. well let's wrap up with this sixth mistruth this sixth lie that i would have us consider and it's this god will never give you more than you can handle hmm? god will never give you more than you can handle now now, before I uh, uh, detonate that lie, <laughs> let's, let's, let's consider, what, okay, well, let's, let's be charitable. Why would people think that? Why would, why would people say that? What would be a few reasons? And so here are some, here are some reasons, and they're, I, I think they're all well-intended. Um, if you were to hear someone say, well, God will never hear you more than you can handle, what's, what's going on there? Well, well, first, perhaps they're just trying to, extend comfort in a difficult situation maybe perhaps the person trying to say look god's in control you're going to be okay it'll be all right whatever it is okay well well god is in control he is sovereign we do believe that and um i don't know what's going to happen next we'll see right so maybe maybe it's a, a it's an attempt to bring comfort to a difficult situation I can understand that then. Uh, another reason people say, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle may be related to, to a, a verse. Just write this down. You can look at it later. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And in that verse, Paul says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, 
but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So if we're talking about temptation, then, or, and that is being lured by Satan into sin, well, yes, yes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says God is faithful. God promises he will provide an escape hatch so that you can endure the temptation. So, so when you are being tempted, look for the escape. Look for the escape, all right? Um, uh, and, and, and part of what's behind 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, is it, you know, it's, look, while it's true that we sin, it's also true that we don't have to sin, okay? So, so there's a third reason, uh, and I suspect that this is really where this, I suppose, half-truth comes in. When people say God will never give you more than you can handle, what they often mean is that we don't want to be given more than what we think we can handle. Okay? So truth be told, we want a climate-controlled life. We want dibs on the thermostat. Hmm? We want more comfort and less heat. And... I'm with you. I'm with us. All right? This is a nice room. Okay? Um, so we make our plans, and then we pray that God will sign off on our climate-controlled plans. But that rarely happens. God, God nearly always gives us more than we can handle. And let me show you. If you have your Bibles, meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And what I hope that we see in these verses is the testimony of an apostle whose life was more than he could handle. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should bo wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times 
I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like more than what Paul can handle. Hmm? Really? I'm, I, I'm serious. You see that? He, I mean, you, he, is the, he is up to his nostrils, smothered in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And, and if this section's not enough, I would just have you uh, look at the previous chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 29, where Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from his own, my own people, in danger from Gentiles. Danger, danger, danger. And if that's not enough, you can even go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, where Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. Oh, we could, I could make this a long sermon if you want. We can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, We felt that we had received the sentence of death. That sounds to me like he's in over his head. And yet, and yet, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, I am content. Meaning, meaning I, I'm, I'm happy about, I'm delighted in, I'm pleased with. I don't fight with God anymore about this. What are you fighting God about today? What is that? Is it about your difficult circumstance? Is it about your weakness? Your disability? Your hardship? Your job? Your job? You got to go to work tomorrow and face your boss whom you've nicknamed Sauron. Well, what would it take to get us to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10? I'm content. I'm content. So, here it is, and it's our big idea for today. So, so <clears throat> God has not said, I will never give you more than you can handle. Here's what he said. God will never give you more than he can handle through you. Now, 
And that's what I want us to see in these verses. Let's just stay here in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's talk about Paul's story in these verses, and then let's apply them to our story. Paul's story, our story. All right? Paul's story, verse 1. When Paul says, I must go on boasting, he's like, well, what's that? All right? Here's, here it is. When he says, I must go on boasting, he's responding to the Corinthian church. Paul planted this church at Corinth, and Paul had such a conflicted relationship with this church. I mean, uh, he proclaimed Christ. There were conversions. There were baptisms, supernatural signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet it seems that the Corinthians still struggled uh, by the culture of their world. The, 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 Corinthians, the Corinthians were just swept up in, in Roman Empire triumphalism. And, and the Corinthians, they, they thought that Paul needed help being a better apostle, and they weren't afraid to notify him about their thoughts. Uh, they, they, they thought that Paul lacked curb appeal, that he lacked presentation optics. Oh, Paul, your writing skills are, are strong, but when you show up in person, well, you are you're, 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 you're kind of embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, I'm not making this up. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So, so the Corinthians are like, well, look, Paul, we want to help you be a better presenter. We want, we want to help you. Do you hear that? <laughs> Spiritual novices were offering coaching advice to a seasoned apostle. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I read our comment cards and I can still learn. I'd like to think I'm, I'm still at a stage where I can still learn from others, but, but this was just too much. This was too far. And, and so, so, especially their advice, their advice, Paul, you need to brag more. You need to talk about your supernatural experiences more. You need to wow your audience with riveting personal stories. You need to show off some strength, some credentials. You need to flash your apostolic badge. You need to be more triumphant. And Paul is like, my ears are hurting me. Okay, here's my version of triumphant. And so what Paul does in these verses, and if you actually go back to chapter 11, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 21, and, and it goes all the way to, to around chapter 12, verse 10, which we read. So that section is what some Bible scholars call the fool's speech. The fool's, because Paul says in verse 21, I'm speaking as a fool. I'm speaking, and then later on he says, I'm talking like a madman. So, and, and, and Paul sarcastically replies to, to, their, to their advice, not by talking about his spiritual triumphs, rather he talks about his near-death experiences. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul continues, he says, oh, you got me on a roll now, more boasting. I must go on boasting. You see this? I want you to understand the context here. And, and, and so what happens here is Paul proceeds to disclose an amazing spiritual experience that he had. 
And he, he even says there in verse 1, I don't know why I'm talking about this. There's nothing to be gained by it. So evidently, when the Apostle Paul was actually with the church at Corinth, he never talked about it, see? So this letter came afterwards, after his time with them. I don't know why I'm talking about this. There's nothing to be gained by it. But you asked for it, so here we go. Paul says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into paradise. Caught up. So it must have been something involuntary. Paul says, I don't know if it was an out-of-body experience or not. I don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. He says, I just know that this man heard words too wonderful to tell. Words impermissible to tell. Now, who's Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. And, and so, why is he using the third person? Because he's trying to downplay his experience. And in verse 6, he shifts to first person. But only to say, look, I could talk about this because it really happened, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So I want your faith to rest on the objective bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb and the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, not on my experience, see, Paul says. So I had this experience, caught up into paradise, and, and, and you can just kind of feel the tension because the Corinthians are about to, you know, they're about to, to, to get a taste, right? A taste of the triumphant. They're about to hear this triumphant story of Paul, visions and revelations. There's lean, they're leaning in. Okay, 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 now, now, okay, now you, 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 you're working with us, Paul. Good, good. So now what happened? What happened? Paul says, well, 14 years ago, I was caught up into paradise, the third heaven, and, and, and then Paul says, that's all. Is that what your Bible says? Well, okay, 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 14 years ago. Nothing recent? No. But what was, what was it like? I really can't say. But, but, but why? Why? Um, so like my grandfather... Louis Roscoe Phillips was born in the year 1900, and I did his funeral in 1989, so that's the time. Can you imagine trying to explain the internet to Louis Roscoe Phillips from El Dorado, Kansas, when he was in 1930? Try to explain the internet to someone in 1930. How do you do that? There's no common frame of reference, right? Uh, we had guests from who lived here in Champaign-Urbana uh, who came to study at the university from Turkey. And uh, the, the, the husbands once queried me about American football. Try to explain a touchback. What's a touchback? Uh, yeah, uh, it took a while. I, mean, I just, and it's not, and it wasn't because of, it, it's just because there's no frame of reference. We didn't have a frame of reference here, see. And uh, so Paul says, I, I, I really can't say. And, uh, you know, how he was taken to paradise, he doesn't know. What he saw, he doesn't say. And what he heard, 
he's really not authorized to repeat. So, so evidently what happened to Paul was intended for Paul. It wasn't intended to satisfy his curiosity. It was intended to fortify his faith. It was intended to put ballast in his boat that was going to live for a long time in the sea of suffering. Think of it as an anchor for the roughest weather. And Paul says to the Corinthians, this is me being triumphant. Oh, and one more thing, verse 7, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited. Now stop right there. Stop right there. So, so Paul understands that such a spectacular, supernatural experience of God had the potential to swell his head with pride. Isn't that interesting? So we often think that if we had an experience in paradise, it would make us more humble. But no, the temptation was one of pride. So, so be careful what you pray for, because seeing more of God may tempt you to become more conceited, not less. Hmm. Hmm. So, so what does God do? What does God do? Verse 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You see that twice he, twice he says, this is to keep me from becoming conceited. Twice, twice, at the beginning and end of verse 7. A thorn, a scallops, a scallops, a thorn, a stake, a stake in the flesh, signifying that it was deep, and it was excruciating, and it was chronic. The stake was given me. That's the divine passive voice. God is behind this. God, and, but, if, but if true, then why is the stake also described as a messenger of Satan? If, if it's from God, how can it also be called an angel of Satan? Ah, because the devil is God's devil, that's why. Paul declares that God uses the angels of Satan to disrupt the designs of Satan. Satan's evil intentions are used by God toward Paul's holiness. But that didn't keep the Apostle Paul from his earnest appeal in verse 8. Lord Jesus, remove this stake from my flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, and finally the Lord spoke. And here's what he said that could be passed on. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect. That word means made complete. It's brought to its intended destination in weakness. In weakness. So, so God didn't answer Paul's prayer, but he did meet Paul's need. Though unhealed, Paul was not abandoned. And Paul's pain was not taken. Rather, God's grace and power were given. 
And I don't know what that stake in the flesh was any more than I know what Paul saw. But the stake in Paul's flesh made him so weak that any power that came from Paul had to be the power of the Spirit of the resurrected Son of God. And that's what people saw. They saw the glory of the Father. So God used that stake to pin Paul back to earth, but God used that stake to pin Paul back to God. See, this passage isn't primarily about the ecstasy of visions in paradise, and it's not primarily about inexplicable suffering, and it's not, it's not about the prevention of conceit or the degrading of Satan primarily. Rather, it is about the completed, amplified, and uncontested dominion and power of Jesus' grace. Jesus' grace. And Paul joyfully accepted this gift. He he understood Satan's thorn to be God's gift. And Paul realized that his life was meant to be a performance theater, displaying both the humiliation of Satan and the exaltation of the risen Christ. And that's why Paul could say in verse 9, that's why he can say, I, I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Are you hearing what Paul is saying here? I'll say it the way uh, one of my professors, Don Sanukian, said it. He said, the thing you most pray God would remove from your life is perhaps a thing you most want to keep. Because that's what God's going to use to magnify Christ. God won't give you more than he can handle through you. And that's what we're learning here. And that takes us to us. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that have thrown me against the rock of ages. Have you learned to do that? Church, I just, I fear that, you know, we often think that God sees our weaknesses as mistakes or malfunctions. And these verses teach that Paul's weakness was a vehicle to transport the power of God. And more than our strength, it's, it's our weaknesses that qualify us to serve God. And nothing teaches prayerful reliance like the despair of being assigned a job that you cannot do without God. And we live in such a starstruck world that's impressed by exultant displays of strength. The city of man wants trophies and triumphs and speed and more and better and faster. The city of man Im imagines that God pitches his tent with the especially famous and powerful. Those who can speak of ecstasies and miraculous power, who can command large crowds and as, they, as they jet set from city to city and enjoy the spotlight of the center stage. But it is not so. Jesus Christ, the supreme son, 
who lived in inexpressible glory. (laughs) The Son of God was not born in the capital city of Rome. He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And he put on flesh and he pitched his tent with the weak and the unknown, the suffering, the the shut-in, the anonymous, the invisible. And there's only one human strength that impresses our God. You know what that is? Strong faith. That's what impresses. And and even then, that we don't even we don't even concoct us. Paul says in Ephesians that it's a gift from God, not by works that no one can boast. Faith is utter dependence on the strength of God. God, if you don't come through, I'm done. And that's why when God calls us into our various roles in his kingdom, he makes sure that our callings offer plenty of opportunities to expose our weaknesses. And if we're not careful, we can think that coming in here is you know, where we kind of want to hide our weaknesses from one another. You know, we enter this worship service like we've been invited to Cinderella's ball. And you, you know, we've got to clean ourselves up and we've got to look the part and wear the mask and fit in. And so we bibbidi-bobbidi-boo our masks of put-togetherness, right? And we walk into church hoping nobody will notice. But the irony is that as long as we go to church dressed in the pretenses of our own put-togetherness, we're just going to go, we're going we're gonna to miss the one place where we're free to lay them down. In the light of the enoughness that God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what I came here to say to you. Can we be a church where weakness is acknowledged? Can we we be a church where weakness is welcomed? Can can we be a church where we admit our limitations? What, What if we let our weaknesses bring us together? What if we learn to live without our masks, live without the pretense, Live without, the, live without wondering, well, if you really knew my weaknesses and vulnerabilities, would you still love me? What if this were a safe place? We could say, yes, because God's grace is sufficient. It's, I couldn't be here 34 years, Sarah and I, without God's grace through you to us. I just, it just couldn't happen. I think it's a beautiful thing to grow old together. And and when we have belonging, it's sweeter. Because when you get older and you don't have belonging, there's no one to say, I'm with you in your weaknesses. Because time will only reveal our weaknesses. But weakness is what brings us together. Weakness becomes the cement of our community. Weakness makes us admit to one another, I understand you, I need you, I love you, and God is good, and there's power in that church. God exerts his greatest power at the time of your greatest weakness, so you can trust him.
you can trust him. That's what I came here to say today. Would you bow your heads? And I want to ask you as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want you to think about the weaknesses that you have. Your weaknesses, your weaknesses, your hardships. I'm not talking about the things that God has empowered you to be able to change. I'm talking about your weaknesses, things that you can't change. Things that are out of your control. Do you look at these limitations as hindrances to ministries or as avenues through which God can bring himself glory? What are you thinking right now as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed? Oh, beloved, God told Paul that his strength is shown to be perfect in our weaknesses. So don't despise, therefore, the hardships and weaknesses and struggles and frailties. But trust God so that those who see your life see God, not you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. Help us. Give us your spirit's power and strength that we might be content, happy, at peace with your all-sufficient grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, and the church said,